Well, good morning. I hope you have your Bible and that you will use it with me this morning. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we've come to a point in the calendar where Christmas has passed and the New Year is ahead of us. There are so many things that have happened and will be happening and all kinds of things to grab our attention. Lord, would you allow us to stop, to pause, to worship? Would you open our ears to hear? Would you allow our hearts to be open to the compassion that you feel? Would you allow, Lord, for our understanding to be given to us so that we might be able to follow you? For we know that in and of ourselves, we do not have the capacity to be able to follow you. We want to live as you lived. We want to be your disciples. We want to follow you. And Lord, as we look at a new year, the challenge is to do that. It's a challenge, Lord, for us in the next 30 minutes to just simply focus our attention on you and keep it there. We need you desperately to help us with all this. So would you, in this moment of taking a look at what it is you call for us to be, would you allow us, Lord, to be able to sense your presence, your touch, for you to be able to work in us and through us, that when we leave here, we're different than when we came in. Teach us your way. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we're at that time when the end of the year is upon us. For some of us, it's been a bad year with all kinds of things, and we're looking forward to a new year in the hope that it's going to have some improvement over the last one. Others of us are looking forward to a new year and saying, well, last year was pretty good. I'm hoping for as good again. We look at the new year with some optimism usually. And as we get into what we're going to be doing in the next few days, as we go into that new year, we need to be called to our mind and into our mind the message that our pastor has been leading us in. In recent weeks, we've heard that he is the light of the world. Praise God, he is. A world that is dark and needs his light, he has shined it into our world. And he is the life that we so desperately need. Last Sunday, we heard that there is a darkness that we are a part of before we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad if you're a Christian today that you no longer are dwelling in the dark? On Christmas Eve, we heard that we are a people who are called to be a spotlight, to shine his light into our community. A very appropriate message for a Christmas where we need to recognize that Jesus has come into our midst, Emmanuel with us, God with us. We look at what the message is that we've been being given, 
Don't you think that we need to understand how we're going to be able to live the Christian life? Have any of you had a crisis of belief in your life? Now, I've had conversations with many of you, many of you in here I've known for over a decade. And as I go back in my mind to conversations that we've had, many of you have shared with me how at some point in your life you came to a point of asking hard questions about belief, about practice of the Christian faith. I know that preachers aren't supposed to have those, but guess what? We do. Let me give you an example from my own life. I surrendered to preach in a little country church. A school teacher called out to be involved in an activity that he didn't feel at all capable of doing. In my first church, I had done every job in that church except the WMU director. And I knew the church, and I knew the people, and it was an interesting experience because when people know the pastor intimately, he has a hard time doing some ministry. I went from there to another country church, and that was a church that you had to have a road map to be able to go find. And that country church, we were baptizing 600 or more people every year. One year, we baptized over 900 people. I can remember one service where we had over 60 people in the baptistry in one service. Wore three preachers out. <laughs> I went from there to a third church in Alabama. And during the first two years of being there, we had been amongst the top in baptisms for the state of Alabama. And there came a point as I was entering my third year as pastor there. I was sitting in the pastor's study, had spent time in prayer and looking at the Word, and I was struggling. Yeah, even a crisis of belief for the pastor of a highly successful pastor. You know, that's how we, you know how we count that in Baptist realms, don't you? A preacher is successful if he has nickels and noses. Numbers. How many, in the, in the way of how much are you bringing in, the way of money, giving, and how many people are attending and getting what in the baptistry? That's how you decide whether somebody's successful in Baptist life. Not the best measurements, but it, let's be honest, that's how we do it. And I was being successful doing all kinds of great stuff for Jesus. I was doing these things out of the emotion that came from knowing that I had been saved and knowing that there was something that Jesus had done in my life. And you'd say, well, that's pretty good motivation. And it is. But you know, we can do a lot of stuff in our own power. And I had to come to grips with the fact that one word from Jesus was worth 10,000 of my sermons. If I could somehow 
get my people to Jesus. He could do more in just one word than I could do over years of ministry. I started to deal with what is real ministry then? What is really this business of living the Christian life? And I came to understand, my friends, that it's about not doing, but being. It's not about doing Christian stuff. It's about becoming the person that Jesus created you to be. It's about allowing Him to do through you what only He can do. And too often, we in our churches tend to try to do all kinds of activity. And what I want to call your attention to is that the gist of what the Christian is to do, the basics of what Christianity is, is becoming like Him. You know, that's what the word Christian means, isn't it? It was a word of, of antagonism. It was a derogatory term, Christian. Ooh, there are those little Christ. That's where the word Christian comes from. Our lives ought to resemble Him, shouldn't they? So much so that the lost community can see who? Us or Him? Him. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a person who's living like Him? Well, I love the fact that Jesus defines it for us. As you get into Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, he gives to us what it is that his expectation is. He says, come to me. And it's worthwhile for us to repeat those three words. Come to me. Let him have his effect, in other words. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I have to tell you, sitting at that pastor's desk, I needed rest. I needed rest. Yeah, I was tired, but my soul was troubled. And then he finishes this. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I have to tell you, I found some real liberating, freeing statements in that set of scriptures that day. I came to understand some things. You see, in the ancient world, a yoke was the teaching of a master teacher. The yoke was something that you gave to your disciples. You taught the yoke, the basics of your teaching, to your disciples, and they learned that. The people who were Pharisees of that day, they also had a yoke, they had a teaching. And it was difficult. It was harsh. 
It was accomplished with a heavy burden. It was all about doing stuff. It was controlling. It was impossible to live under. And Jesus comes along. And he says, I have a different yoke. I have a different teaching. It's not about what you do. He says, this is liberating. Because it's going to be focused on who he is rather than who you're trying to be. Did you get it? It's about him. It's not about you. It's about him becoming the center of your attention more than it's about what you can accomplish. That's good news. And the great news for me sitting in that chair that day in Alabama was the fact that it wasn't for just the disciples 2,000 years ago, but it was for me and it's for you. That if we will take his yoke, his teaching, and apply it through our life, if we'll allow him to have that kind of impact in us, his teaching is easy. His burden is light. You ever met somebody that's burnt out in Christian work? Some of you in this room probably have gone through that for years working, never being able to find rest. And, you know, we in the church will work you hard if you'll work. If you're a person who will volunteer, well, we'll put you to work and we'll work you to death. We have to be careful with that, of course. But the key here is to know him. To know Him. You see, if I'm doing stuff like Jesus did it, if my focus is on doing things, then I better know what He did. Don't you think? I better find out what I need to copy. And then I came upon this very disconcerting set of scriptures. It's at the end of the Gospel of John. John 21, 25, right at the end of the gospel. <laughs> and, and most people read this verse and it just kind of passes away. And I got to reading it that day and I thought, ooh, that applies here. 25th verse says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, what is that verse telling me? It's telling me that when I take a look at what I know from my Bible Jesus did, I don't have a complete record. There's a lot of things Jesus did I don't know about. And if I'm going to base my Christian life on what I do, and I'm going to copy him, guess what? There's a lot of stuff I don't know about I can't copy. This is an issue if you're going to live a life that's copying and doing 
what it is that the Scripture gives to us. There's got to be a way to live the Christian life that goes beyond just doing stuff. You see, I couldn't speak in detail to anything because I didn't have the whole story. I had to start to get to know Jesus. All right, let's go back to the, to the Bible and see. Let's think for a few moments about those disciples. They're following Jesus. For three, a little over three years, they are living with him. They lived together. They ate together. They debated together. They experienced the hardships of life and the joys of life together. They went everywhere together. They cared about things together. In fact, they found out what Jesus cared about, and that changed how they cared. They found out what does he do in difficult situations so that they would learn how to be able to respond. It was important to them that they get to know Jesus. They knew he loved the Father. They'd seen it. They knew that he loved his neighbor as himself. They'd seen it. They knew that he had a life of sacrifice and purpose. And they knew he was on a mission. And it was well defined. And people mattered to him. He, they knew all of this. The disciples knew this intimately. Because they were there 24-7. That's not available to us. Except in a few cases given in the New Testament. So how am I going to do this? How are you going to? Well, when I start to boil down all of his teachings, the simple truth is that I need a rock-solid foundation to be able to build upon. And Paul understood this. In his writings, he is writing to a church that never had the opportunity to eat with Jesus or to listen to Jesus. They heard about Jesus. And that's us, isn't it? And I want you to hear what Paul says to us in Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5 through 8. Because he's going to give to us the basis by which we're going to get the intimacy that we need to be able to live like Jesus. He starts it off with two words. Please notice these two words. Your attitude. Hmm. Am I the only one in the room that has trouble with my attitude? Oh, you've got that problem too, huh? He says, it isn't about what I'm going to do, it's about who I am inside. He says to me, your attitude, the way you think, the way you act inside, what you, what's motivating you. And he says here, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
I'm going to repeat that, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now, if you pay attention to those verses, you can't help but notice that he is telling us how to live as Jesus lived. We need to notice this. He says no one took Jesus' life. The Romans didn't take it. The Jews didn't take it. He laid it down. He gave his life. That baby who we celebrated this past week came to lay down his life. That was his purpose. Then notice the progression. He exits eternity and the presence with God the Father, and he chooses to be born on earth and become a servant. Not the master, the servant. And he chooses to sacrifice himself for the redemption of every man, woman, and child. He is moving in a certain manner. He's going deeper and deeper into the commitment of surrender. He's, we're constantly looking in our culture today at a way to get ahead. There's a pride issue in many churches. We baptize this many people. Well, that's a good thing, but be careful. We like to get ahead. Would you agree? When you were in the business world, when you're in school, when you're in doing things, you want to get ahead. You want to be number one. You want to be the one who is breaking out at the front, getting out in front. But that's not the attitude of Jesus. The attitude of Jesus is to continually surrender himself. It's the opposite of how our culture tells us. See, Paul understood what Jesus displayed. Jesus lived a life that displays a downward mobility and Paul is calling the church, the people that he has called out from the Gentiles to do the same thing, to live a life of self-sacrificing. I've always wondered why we Baptists are afraid of looking at history. We don't do history well, do we? We don't know a lot of it. I'm not talking American history, I'm talking church history. Did you know in the early church, talking first century, a village might have or a city might have a disease to come in and people are dying. And the people who could get out of town, what did they do? They got out of town. Of course, what they didn't realize was they were spreading the disease everywhere they went. But as they were leaving, a curious thing happened. There was a strange group of people, they call themselves Christians, 
who aren't leaving town, they're going into town. What's this about? And they would minister to the sick and bury the dead and take care of families and minister to people at their own risk, of course. Many of them dying as a, cause, as a result of this. The church, from its very beginning, understood that we are not, it's not about us. It's about them. It's about the world around us. When Jesus appears upon the scene, many of those who followed John the Baptist were troubled. Do you remember the story of how he appears? The Bible talks about him traveling 60 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist. It must have been important, do you think? And he goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist. Up to that time, people flocked to John the Baptist. He was a person of interest. Many thought he was the Messiah. And then Jesus appears. And John baptizes him and gives testimony of who he is. And many of those people who had been following John now are following Jesus. When Tony read what he did just a moment ago from John 3, verse 30, he's talking, John is talking from personal experience. John was a disciple of John the Baptist who went and followed Jesus. He knows this very well. And the disciples of John went to John the Baptist and they said, what are we going to do? People are deserting us. They're no longer coming to us to be baptized. They're going to Jesus and his disciples. What are we going to do? And Tony read it a few moments ago. John makes the most important statement of his entire ministry. It speaks to you and me this morning. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Let it sink in. Let it sink in. He's talking about a downward mobility. We are to decrease to ourselves on a daily basis in order that Jesus might increase in us and through us more of Jesus, less of us. He's talking about a downward mobility where we lose our lives in order to find the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. Let's be honest. Our lives, we live our lives so that we are the center of our life. But the Christian can't live it that way. Our position has to be an intentional downward mobility every day of our life. We have to make it our business to discover our access to the kingdom of God 
and as a member of the kingdom of God, then to experience wholly that kingdom, ministering in that kingdom every day of our life. We don't talk about kingdom too much as Baptists. But ladies and gentlemen, we are part of something far bigger than First Baptist Church. We're part of the kingdom. And the kingdom's made of every tongue, every nation, every people group, every race, every ethnic group, you name it. They're all part, represented in the kingdom of God. The one thing we have in, in common is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of a kingdom. And we must act like it. Not too long ago, I had a conversation with a man. And he was sharing with me how he had reached all his professional goals. And that he had also uh, met all of his goals for his family. He shared with me about a wonderful wife, about children, about a, an income that was substantial, about a nice house, about wonderful relationships. This guy is living the American dream. But he's also a Christian. And inside of him is a raging war. It's the same battle I was fighting back in that church in that pastor's study. I'm living the life. I have the world by the tail. And the reality is, it's owning me. It's controlling me. It's not real. And I, as a Christian, am called to something else. He's going to spend the rest of his life unpacking that simple truth and trying to see how that can be applied in his life. And it's a struggle all of us have to come to. Now, what, what's involved here? Well, there's some big changes. There's some big changes that have to happen. What we learn about living for Jesus is considering others as the center of our world. What we find out is that if we're the center of our world, our world really is very tiny. But when we consider our life from the kingdom perspective, is much, much larger. Do you understand that Jesus held the world in his hands? Literally, he does. He created it, and Colossians tells us he sustains that which he has created. At every moment, at every day, he is constantly in contact with what he has made. And, I love this, to the finest detail of everything in his creation, he's in touch. And he calls us to that kind of sensitivity. Jesus is going through the street, a press of people around him, a woman with an issue of blood, a hemorrhage that had been going on for many years. She reaches out and touches him, and he knows it. How? Because he's sensitive, looking for it, knowing that there is a need. 
he would have crowds come to him to hear him teach. And as he is teaching, the Scripture says his heart was breaking with great compassion because he saw those people as sheep without a shepherd. At one time, he had 5,000 men plus women and children that he fed. Another time, he was able to take 12 and have a simple meal. He's a God who deals with detail as well as the big. We like to think big is most important, but it isn't really. Jesus cares about the individual. I, you know, when I go to that cross and I read about it, he's dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world for all time. That's pretty heavy, wouldn't you agree? And yet, he has a conversation with a thief on the next cross. What's this? He cares. Jesus is demonstrating that it is in no way all about us. This is not our world. It's his. He's the one who bought it with his blood. We as members of the kingdom, we get to become a part of a mustard seed that can grow to tremendous proportion. But it's his, not ours. And yes, we've all read John 3.16. And yes, we all understand that God loves the world and that He loves us and that He gave His Son. That's all true. But listen, I'm not the main attraction and neither are you. Once in a while, Jesus will Take me to the side. Maybe he's done this with you. And he'll, he'll take some tweezers and he'll get a hold of my self-righteous, self-centeredness. Yeah, I've got it. So do you. And he'll peel that back. And he'll start to show me the world as he sees it. He'll pull that filter that I've put in there off and he'll start to show me what's real and how he sees it. Those are blessed times. Wonderful times. Because he starts to show me that God cares about hungry people. He cares about the oppressed. He cares about the misdirected and the disconnected. He cares about his world. He cares about you and me and even our pettiest, smallest concerns. But he invites us to dream his dream of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He invites us to apply his prayer. 
you know, the prayer that goes like this, your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, apply it. Apply it. So that maybe it looks like this. Let your kingdom come on earth in my life. In my surroundings. In my experiences. In my purpose for living. Just as it is going to be done in heaven with all who are there. Apply Him into our lives. So that it might become that simple faith once again. Do you remember the days when you were a first believer and everything was so simple and plain? Do you remember? You were a lot like the blind man who Jesus healed. And they asked him, well, what happened? He says, I really don't know. One minute I'm, I'm blind, the next minute I can see. I really don't know anything else. Simple. Do you remember this simple faith you used to have? But we complicate it, don't we? We keep adding to it, compounding it, supplementing it. And the mindset we have is some of that darkness that the preacher talked about last Sunday, which is comfortable to us. That's, after all, where we survived for many years. And that starts to filter in. And it starts to allow us to introduce ideas into our mind and heart about Christian faith and what it means to walk with God. And we start adding after all, Jesus might one day not be enough. Maybe I need something else to depend on. No. You see, when I get to a point where I start to let Jesus intervene in my life, he, pe he peels away that self-righteousness, and I start to see the simple faith that I've got to return back to. That's when I'm going to start to do it his way. So, we're about to go into 2020. We're about to go into a journey of living a new way, a new year. Don't you think it's time to we live it as Jesus lived it? Wouldn't that be better than maybe the way we would live it? I remember the early days of my faith. I had a red-letter Bible. Any of you got one? Okay, I see several heads nodding. I was a teenager when I finally started the odyssey of finding the Lord. I was 21 before I finally said, okay, Lord, let's do this. But I played church for a number of years. In that period of time, I was constantly seeking out, who is Jesus? What is this thing, salvation? What is it really all about? I remember that red-letter Bible. I was convinced if I would just read those red-letter, you know, his statements, that somehow God would somehow speak through those red words and I would start to understand this business of living Jesus. And I learned all kinds of stuff about Jesus. And I started to learn all kinds of things that he would do. And I started pursuing 
all kinds of stuff. That's why I was sitting in that pastor's study, complexed, concerned. I had been doing stuff. And it was based in what I had accumulated in the way of knowledge. But it's important that you hear what I'm about to say, my friends. It's not about whether you know Jesus, know about him, you know his words. That's not important as much as knowing Jesus and him transforming your life. There are a lot of people in church that are miserable simply because they're here and they need to be here. And there are a lot of people, I'm convinced, that will not make it to heaven because they know all about Jesus but have never trusted him. We need to be people who are following him, being like Jesus. What's that going to look like? It's not going to look like a lot of people that you're used to seeing in church. Some of you are looking at me kind of puzzled. What are you talking about? i got news for you. Most people in our Baptist churches are convinced it's about doing stuff. It's not. It's about being like Christ. Well, what's that going to look like? Well, it means I'm going to have a different lens that's going to be a focus on the gospel. It means that the presence of the Spirit is going to be all that much more important. It means I'm going to see myself on a journey of friendship with Him. It means that living life will be maximum when I'm living it minimally. It means that I'm going to be giving up to ultimately go up. It means I'm going to be laying down in order to be lifted up. It means becoming last only to find yourself first. That's the Lord we serve. He calls us to a different way than our culture has led us to believe is the right way. And too many of us have trusted in going the culture's way. Living for Jesus is a new way of life. It's rethinking every assumption you have. It's rethinking every opinion, every expectation, every experience of life focused on the kingdom and not on yourself. Not on a place, but on a person. Jesus descended that he might ascend and that is the period that is the pattern for your life and for mine we must decrease that he might increase in a moment i'm going to have a prayer we're going to have an invitation My hope is, I'm speaking to mostly Christians here this morning, I'm speaking to you about taking 2020 and making it a year where you will decrease and He will increase through you into this world.
How are you going to live like Jesus? That's really the question this morning. How are you going to live for Jesus in 2020? Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize we cannot live for you. We can't do it enough. We can't be good enough. We can't talk it up enough. We can't make things happen. We can't sell it to other people. You know what, Lord? It's going to be you in us, our hope of glory. It's going to be you working through us, us surrendered into your hands. Lord, it's going to be you doing your good work so that that one word from your mouth might somehow make it through mine. That somehow individuals would hear and understand and believe. Lord, it's not about us. It's about you. Would you allow John the Baptist's statement during this invitation and as we go into a new year to become the focus in our life. It must be Jesus who increases and it must be that I decrease. That way, I can live your life in this new year. Take charge of us, Lord, that we'll walk with you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.